An influential figure in contemporary poetry, Ron Silliman, is associated with the West Coast literary movement known as language poetry. He edited In the American Tree in 1986, the primary language poetry anthology, and wrote The New Sentence, 1987, one of the movement's defining texts. His prolific career includes over 30 books of poetry, collaborations, critical work, and anthologies. He hosts a popular poetry blog started in 2002 and has spent much of the past decade championing experimental or post-avant poetics. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you. Language poetry has been described as following upon the most adventurous work of Gertrude Stein, Louis Zukofsky, William Carlos Williams, and Jack Spicer, as oppositional literary practice that questions many of the assumptions of mainstream poetry instead of considering poetry as a staging ground for the creation and expression of an authentic voice or personality, language poetry arises out of an exploded self, blurs genre boundaries, and seeks actively collaborative relationships between writer and reader. Perhaps you could tell us about this exploded self. Right. I was actually thinking of all the things you said in that introduction. I I think it's the uh, term exploded I would probably feel least comfortable with simply because I think the relationship to the self that I and the other people who are generally characterized as language poets is more one of questioning the inherent uh, implicit structure of the self. So far from exploding it, it's much more like we're a bunch of plumbers coming to look at the pipes underneath the sink to see what actually is going on when it's plugged up or, I mean, one could extend that metaphor in a lot of silly ways. But it's much more, I think, an investigation than a detonation. An investigation of of the implicit uh, assumptions and presumptions that one makes behind the self. Uh, Somebody asked me the other day here in uh, Ottawa about the relationship of my poetry and that of my friends to what they characterized as the bardic eye of American literature that extends from Walt Whitman through Allen Ginsberg, for example. It includes Pound and Williams and Charles Olson certainly as well. And one of the things that I noted was that our kind of writing sort of crystallized as a joint venture uh, right around 1970. And it was not an accident that it occurred at that point of time because many of the assumptions about what was possible with that bardic eye, uh, especially if you associate it with the American experience uh, in quite those terms, were exactly the kind of impulses that got us into deep trouble uh, in Southeast Asia in the 1960s and early 70s. So we were meaning the, the, meaning uh, the war in Vietnam. Of the meaning the that you're here to set the world right? Or? Not necessarily to set the world right so much as to see what the particular problems of that bardic eye might be and to maybe work on creating a much more humble 
sense of the self. Less egotistical? Uh, less egotistical in, in the sense of less uh, ready and willing to simply invade another country at the drop of a hat. I wish I could say that on that particular point we had been more successful. You mean that you'd won the war or that you hadn't gone in in the first place? The, I wish the U.S. would stop invading every country that irritates it yeah. constantly, uh, and it, which it does invariably in the language of helping people. It's only in the assumptions of that self, that bardic self, that one could logically make a statement that in order to save the village we had to destroy it. There is a logic in which that is not a completely insane statement. However, that logic is a logic that deeply pathological. So in that sense, I would characterize this as a bunch of uh, clinicians trying to diagnose the self. The self as, as nation? The self and its relationship to nation, its relationship to all of the encoded human categories. So w what you were doing then is not necessarily exploding the self, but you were trying to incorporate other viewpoints within the poetry? We other are trying to examine how viewpoints were put together, uh, what made language seem, quote, natural, unquote, uh, what made it seem real. The whole concept of clarity in writing mm. is a series of specific literary devices that are intended to code the writing as being, quote, clear as glass, unquote. They aren't necessarily natural, and in fact, they're a very specific literary effect, not unlike photorealism in painting, is a series of specific visual effects that are no more what painting, quote, truly is, unquote, than uh, abstract expressionism is that actually leaves behind the figure altogether not to mention the scene. At one point you talk about passion being form and form passion. Mm -hmm. Yes, I, well, I do believe that in writing, it's true of music as well, and I think the other arts, the clearest expression of passion usually comes through the form of the work rather than any proclamations the work may make. I actually tend to distrust works that proclaim passion but formally seem very neutral and muddy precisely because they're sending a badly mixed message. It's sort of like your parent telling you that they love you while holding you at arm's length at the same time. So are you in favor of traditional form or are you against? I, what you mean by traditional form I would generally tend to characterize as pattern and say that that in fact isn't the real form of the poem at all, which actually comes much closer to that examination of language, hence the term language poets, which is where you actually will find the function of, actually the functions, I should always use that in the plural, of form in poetry. The recognition that everything, for example, in a poem is composed of different elements of language and that you can get into extremely minute aspects and still have it be quite meaningful. There are poets in this country, in my country, uh, and in Canada as well, who um, clearly make use of the fact that the letter O has a beginning, middle, and an end. It's not an instant in time, and it doesn't automatically dissolve silently into the background in the middle of a word like dog or God.
Can you elaborate on that? Yes, it really is an element that can be used to shape where a text is going, to slow down where a text is. There was a poet out of the uh, beat movement in San Francisco, a man by the name of Lou Welch. For a while, he worked as an ad man and wrote one of the iconic advertising messages of the 1950s, Raid Kills Bugs Dead. The, the great irony of that sentence is it's absolutely typical of his poetry. All one-syllable words, con- consonants yeah. on the outside, mm-hmm. vowels on the inside, and that use of, at one level, unnecessary repetition in order to make emphasis, a deliberate violation of traditional literary practice, and at another level, a recognition that there are some languages in which the word kill means hit. So managing to pull that up to the surface as well. So he's doing multiple things, but a a key element in that entire process is the recognition of the power of those words that have the open sounds at their center and the closed sounds at the periphery. For example, if we really want to talk at at the smallest levels of writing. I I was once uh, fortunate enough to be at the meeting of uh, Robert Duncan and George Oppen for the very first time. And uh, George immediately said to Robert, I want to talk to you about your use of open vowels. And that's very much exactly, I think, the way poets often tend to communicate. So the point that you're making with language poetry is that it's the actual letters and the words themselves as forms that are more important than sonnets. and A sonnet is merely a historical form. They impose a way of thinking. Well, it's, it's a little like imagining. I mean, language changes constantly. The world changes constantly. The idea that forms of art that are participating in language and in the world are unchanging from the 14th century to the Mm. present represents an idea about the continuity of time and the permanence of certain values, which among other things would would bring forward feudalism if we were to carry it to an extreme. That language there's time-tested ways of eliciting emotion, though. You, you, couldn't you agree with that? That there there are forms that have stayed time powerful. Te- there are time-tested ways of encoding emotion, but they often do it in ways that hide the process of emotion from the person experiencing the emotion. You mean they're being manipulated by a trick? A trick is probably too uh, mean a word, but it's true that it involves some kind of manipulation of the reader. What's wrong with that? Uh, What's wrong with that is you don't empower the reader. You don't leave the reader with more tools than they start with. You actually may leave the reader with less. If you read some of the correspondence of the French realist novels of the 19th century, they spend a lot of time worrying about how to arrive at a perfectly transparent literary Zola medium. And Flaubert and uh, Flaubert, Balzac, you know, Stendhal. The the mirror. Uh, not even the not even the mirror. It's it's like the window more than it is the mirror. Stendhal famously talked about yes the, the mirror. mirror. But yes, but the closer they get to it, the more they realize that it's constructed around a series of literary devices 
and that those devices sort of preset responses in ways that readers don't necessarily always recognize or respond to. It's not an accident that James Joyce went straight from the short stories around the dead to writing a work like Ulysses, which takes those same devices and immediately builds a work demonstrating the artificiality of them one after another, after another, after another. You then go from uh, a Joyce to a Faulkner, who then takes those same devices that Joyce developed in The Sound and the Fury and tries to ground them in the psychological profile of the character around whom each chapter is then built. Um, you know, you end up seeing actually what turns out to be the 20th century novel constructed in a, in a really distinct series of moods. I mean, those three, those three books do almost everything up to Thomas Pynchon that can occur uh, in the novel. And so they're, they're sort of laying bare the tricks of the past? They're laying bare the tricks of the past. They're exploring them. Because uh, I think it's, they were, to them, as much um, a matter of discovery uh, as uh, was of exposure. So with these, these authors, as much as anything... It's about, as you say, discovery or throwing uh, themselves loose of the chains of whatever restrictions these forms may have imposed on them as writers and, and also on, on the reader. But in, unless you're fascinated by the process, does it produce work that's genuinely moving or beautiful? Uh, oh, I don't, I, I don't I, know. My, my, my answer to that would be uh, absolutely. Uh, I if I had to pick a text in the 20th century that I thought the term beautiful applied to uh, in a positive way, I would characterize uh, Louis Zakowski's final two movements, the long poem A that he wrote, A22 and A23, which um, are extremely condensed forms of writing uh, mostly non-narrative, although you can see the assassination of JFK and the early uh, projects of the space program show up there, as well as Zakovsky's own move from Brooklyn to uh, Port Jefferson, New York, in the uh, actual narrative elements of that work. But what's important about that work is, in fact, not the narrative elements really at all, uh, so much as it is in to go back to the, the form as passion, passion as form. Can't imagine a more passionate writing. And, and from my perspective, if you wanted to identify beauty as a positive value in literature, uh, it goes back to that term passion again. I actually think that works that were simply, you know, what some folks like to refer to as the sharp implement school of American writing, where the person is working in the garden, notices something, looks up and has an epiphany. That seems to me as soulless as the um, zombies in Night of the Living Dead in those terms. So it's very hard for me to read passion or beauty into that kind of work. I think it's almost impossible. And I think that's a great challenge that writers who who stick to the traditional methods actually have to confront mm -hmm. in that they have to essentially deny themselves access to so many of the tools that are available to them that, you know, uh, literature only expands. Uh, and in fact, the Russian uh, formalists uh, sort of made a, you know, a 
law of literature out of that, that literature is functionally an imperialist project in that whatever it hasn't covered previously, it tries to figure out how to get into literature to constantly expand its purview. And from my perspective, that's a really attractive uh, element. It's a bit uh, like the English language, isn't it? I mean, it, it incorporates, it's kind of a mongrel language. That's why it's so much more successful or, or popular than the French language, for example. Well, uh, yes, but uh, it also has an awful lot to do with uh, battleships uh, as a form of punctuation um, <laughs> in, uh, in those terms as uh, well, which is why everybody will know Chinese in 150 years. It sounds to me that as much as anything, what you admire in poetry is this pushback against tradition. Or against received knowledge, received wisdom, rather than earned wisdom. Okay, so don't, don't you think that these various forms of poetry have earned the accolade of oh, I, wisdom? Oh, you know, I think the great poets were, in fact, the great poets but I also think we sometimes turn them into demigods. I mean, Shakespeare was just a guy, ultimately, and that if one were to follow that method that you're suggesting uh, to its logical conclusion uh, in other areas of life, one would end up with a political program, uh, for example, an aesthetic program that was the equivalent of a political program of someone like Rick Santorum, who is not only out to abolish the gains of the Obama administration and maybe the Clinton administration, but, you know, Galileo and Copernicus as well. Shakespeare was very clever at saying things that were actually quite seditious. This was one of his geniuses. Yes, and Shakespeare was constantly making and creating new forms. Uh, though Shakespeare's one real venture into traditional form is the sonnets, where, as I read them, what Shakespeare was really doing was demonstrating a phenomenon, a challenge, to the class-based literary world that looked down on the world of theater. I mean, Shakespeare was treated with about as much respect in his own time as Matt Greening, who does The Simpsons, is today. Um, and he was demonstrating that the sonnet writers of his period, of whom Ben Jonson is probably the best known, but who were collectively known as the university wits, were in fact a deeply limited and flawed group of people that you didn't have to go to Oxford or Cambridge to write a sonnet, and that they were more university twits than university wits. And so he was attempting to show them that a, essentially a guy from the sticks could do this as well as they could. So in that sense, I read the sonnets as a political challenge that's really about something very specific in those terms. But if you look at the plays, which is really where Shakespeare is Shakespeare, you know, he was a vast font of creative invention. And that's really what I think artists should strive to be. The history of poetry is not the history of the best poems. It's the history of change in poetry. I mean, you can go back and, and then take a look at somebody like Charles Olson, whose work can look very ungainly and awkward, and say, well, there are people who came along since Charles Olson who took what he was doing and make a much more uh, felicitous composition out of it 
but we actually don't read them nearly as much as we do Charles Olson for the same reason that people are more interested in Bob Dylan and his singing than they are many of the Dylan imitators who came along afterwards who actually may have been technically speaking better singers mm -hmm. quote unquote so it's, it's that same phenomenon slightly different field so you admire originality then what we call originality is, I think, an attitude towards information, which is to not take it uh, at face value and to explore what it means. So somebody like a Cecil Taylor, to use again a musical example, or Jimi Hendrix with the guitar, take a look at how it has been played and has been used and start to think of new things they can do with it, that the keys might not be the only part of the piano you could play or that you might be able to do different things with the uh, fret of the guitar than have been done uh, previously. Even if you go back in time a little bit, you take a look at the period between World War I and World War II when electricity and microphones came into uh, the recording process, you no longer as a singer had to be able to reach the back row of an auditorium in order to sing, but it was Bing Crosby who realized that this equipment allowed you to sing softly. And the whole concept of the crooner, I mean, you know, Bing Crosby was the Jimi Hendrix of the microphone uh, in uh, those terms because he recognized that it meant you no longer had to belt it out in order to actually convey what you might want to convey in a song, and that meant, among other things, you could have different kinds of songs. What's the equivalent of the microphone in poetry, then? That is probably the changes today that are occurring around the book. You know, the, the book as an object now is being challenged by all forms of electric media, and yet it in itself continues on quite strong, and there is a movement of uh, the book as art object, which has a really high end in some people who are functionally sculptors who use the book as a um, visual base for their work to somebody like Ottawa's Rob McLennan who does very simple little chapbooks that um, probably runs off to the Xerox store and uh, simply copies them off and has a probably has a saddle stapler as his high-end technical equipment. Mm -hmm. But uh, they're lovely little books because they're well-chosen and well-edited. How does that affect the actual poetry? It, it, well, there are people who certainly gradually respond to these forms and write differently. Again, there's an American poet by the name of Steve Rogenbach, a fairly young fellow, who is writing very short poems um, that he is publishing mostly on the web, self-publishing, for him at, I think, Helvetica.com, which is a, a site of his, where he is taking the graphic elements of printing and the really short, minimalist form of poetry that, for example, would look to the haiku as a long form rather than what he is doing, and is using lots of forms of found speech or language appropriated from commercial uses, for example, to create a new kind of literature. And that kind of change, I actually think it's not an accident that somebody who's doing this is fairly young at this particular point in time, because actually these electronic methods for integrating with the text are really only a couple of decades old.
Yeah. You, you mentioned yesterday Twitter. I mean, the fact yes. that it limits the 140 characters. Right. There's positive things about that and there's negative. What we do know is it, it is creating some kind of force um, that is impacting writing and writing styles. A poet uh, in the U.S. by the name of Lynn Din has done some fabulous texts built out of the text message phenomenon, particularly with the uh, language that has gone along with that texting phenomenon, the spelling uses and the kind of slang. Teenage girls as a major source for innovation in language. One of the things that linguists, for example, are now coming to understand is that teenage women actually are the people who create the most change in the sound of language. So one generation's valley girl turns out to be the next generation's norm. It's the way of the world. It's, there, whenever change occurs, there is always the God help us response. Then 40 years later, some they're watching their kids do something equally outrageous, mm -hmm. and they're saying God help us themselves. But again, what we need is a literature that's capable of registering all of those changes and responding to them. A literature that treats the 14th century um, as though the questions of the Catholic Church applied in the same way as they did in Italy then, or as they did in England, where you could ha have your head end up on a pike on the London Bridge, were you Catholic? That doesn't uh, mean you reject it, though. No, it doesn't mean you reject it. I don't think you reject anything in, in those terms. But it means you explore those differences and you take a look at how things come into existence, go out of existence, and, you know, become, quote, inevitable. Ideology, as, as the French theorist said 30, 40 years ago, is really that stuff that we never question. It's the, it's the hey you that calls your name and you suddenly realize, oh yes, I am a person who does this with my right hand and this with my left and use these utensils this way. Uh, and I never question that because that's what, quote, people do. And it's not being able to see that, in fact, that involves convention and what convention then extends into in so many different ways. In the, the family, over, in yes. the school, mm -hmm. in the spiritual community, in the state. I mean, there are so many different ways to look at that. And I don't think there's a single project for literature in all of that, but rather there is a vast canvas of possibility. One of the things you talk about is what you're after in the new sentence is to increase its ambiguity. Yes, I think uh, ambiguity often causes people to uh, stop and look at what they're doing and ask, why is it this way? What does it mean? How is it I don't understand this? You know, how do we do this new thing? You know, self-checkout lanes in supermarkets, which at one point five, ten years ago were being adopted everywhere, are now being disadopted because from the point of view of customers, they couldn't figure them out. And uh, from the point of view of stores who thought they were going to allow them to uh, fire employees and replace them with machines, they actually have found that the space taken up by the self-checkout lane produces less revenue per square foot than uh, that same space would be if it was turned over into two or three lanes of regular traffic and that the uh, cost-benefit ratio is not what they had envisioned.
So those things come in and go out, and, and people have to figure out how do they use them. Is this an innovation that we'll take, or is this an innovation that will later be seen like the eight-track stereo tape, you know, which, in fact, I think is probably what those self-checkout lanes will turn out to be. But what about in poetry, let's say that someone is intentionally trying to be ambiguous. Yes. There is no beauty in it, let's say, quote, unquote. There's no... Actually, I think there's, there's more often apt to be beauty than, than but, a non but let's But let's say the receiver finds no satisfaction or pleasure or emotion. They're, they don't get anything from it. Obviously, another reader might get something from it. Mm-hmm. But if a majority of receivers don't get anything from it, you chalk that up to ex- experimentation, or is it just that that particular poet trying to express themselves in a, in a way that no one else understands except themselves? Different people will have different things that they're interested in. That's a perfectly normal part of life. Writing for the pleasure of 35 million people in Canada, 300 million people in the United States, involves very much going to the lowest common denominator. And that's one of the reasons American sitcoms look and sound the way they do. That is not the only form of pleasure one can have. And actually, in terms of writing and the pleasure of writing and the possibility of writing, there shouldn't just be one community, but actually hundreds if not thousands. There are at this moment in history something on the order of 20,000 poets publishing in English in the English-speaking countries today. They're not competing for the same readers. They're all competing for a group of readers who respond to what it is they think is important and meaningful. And one of the real challenges, and this is where the publishing industry has been particularly clumsy and inept, because it's really only able to channel things in the most profitable fashion, which is, again, that common denominator. That is a a very ineffective model. One of the reasons why major metro areas, for example, has multiple reading series is because each city is in itself its own particular audience, and they develop their own particular styles. One of the phenomena of the New York School in the 1950s was that there were a ton of painters who happened to be around the writers who were there at that point in time. If you look at the poets who were there then talking to those painters, some of them were very academic, some of them were very un- or even Mm anti-academic, but what they had in common was that they all thought the painting world was pretty interesting. And so that gave them something to talk to that writers in Chicago, writers in San Francisco, writers in Kansas would not have had. And so their, their particular phenomena acquired a name in those terms. But now with 20,000 publishing poets, that group came into existence when we were talking about hundreds of publishing poets, uh, not thousands. There is no reason every major metro area can't find its own particular expression, its own particular audience. And there are many opportunities, for example, as we now see with gay and lesbian and transgender bisexual literature, you know, audiences that are transgeographic but very specific to different identity communities that 40 or 50 years ago functionally did not exist. It's not that there weren't gay and lesbian writers, but until Judy Gron published uh, The Psychoanalysis of Edward the Dyke, there was nobody actually writing 
for an explicitly gay audience. So you're saying then that you have no use for the critic who tells you what's good or bad, or that there are critics or should be critics within each one of these categories that would pass judgment, because we can't, I, read, we can't read everything. Critics can serve as signposts towards things you might be interested in. Well, I, there are two answers to your, to your question, maybe three. One is that most of the traditional critics are dreadful readers. Helen Bendler is close to illiterate, and um, you, you may quote me on that. She's That's only able to read a very narrow portion of American writing that basically makes her irrelevant to 99% of American literature. She rails against that by declaring that they don't mean anything. And what it really means is that, so that she's they don't incapable. have any quality. Yes, right. they, yeah. she's not capable of articulating what's going on in those writings because, in fact, her own responses to the world are still stuck in a universe that where Ike has not yet been elected. But I don't necessarily think that the best response is simply to have a thousand critics writing in different directions, although that's a step in the right direction. I really think writers need to take on that critical function for themselves and that the most healthy approach is when writers talk to other writers and to readers and say, well, this is what I'm trying to do and this is why I think I'm trying to do it. And people say, yes, I get that, or wow, you're really weird. But there's, uh, there's a lack of honesty, in, certainly in the Canadian scene, because other poets sit on boards that grant awards or... There's those a lack problems, of honesty. Those problems exist everywhere, and they often have heavy social coding. For example, uh, in the United States, you're much more likely to uh, get a MacArthur grant if you're part of that 1% of American writing that Helen Bendler can read than if you're part of the 99% around which she's completely inarticulate. And this is one of those situations where you can investigate human nature or you can rail against human nature, but ultimately one of the things you can't do is move above human nature. We're not going to have angels sitting on granting boards. In fact, actually, we're likely to have exactly the opposite. You've been writing one of the most popular poetry blogs in the blogosphere for the last 10 years. I wonder if you could just comment on the impact that that has had on your audience and your poetry and where you think this phenomenon is heading? Well, ten years ago when I started doing my blog, there were very few other venues for social networking. Uh, and I was lucky to recognize that it was a good tool for the publication of critical materials. That allowed me to reach a much broader audience than I'd reached previously. My, my blog has had over three and a half million visits at this point. And that has brought me into contact with a wide range of readers, including those in English-speaking nations that I certainly have never visited as far away as India. In terms of its exposure and the creation of non-geographic networks, the entire blogging phenomena has had a huge impact on uh, writing, but probably one where we won't really see and understand the fruits. I mean, there's always a lag. You know, 10 or 15 years is when we'll really probably start to see 
more of the fruits of those labors, but they certainly have created much more cross-cultural discussion. Uh, I think American poets know a lot more about Canadian poetry as a result of the Internet. I think uh, Canadian poets know more about American poetry as a result of the Internet, although Canadian poets tended historically in the past to do a much better job than American poets did going across the border for reasons that have to do with imperialism. But now you can correspond with a poet in Norway, a poet in Finland, a poet in Italy, and a poet in Australia, you know, within an hour. That's a very different world than it was then. Today, however, there are multiple tools for social networking, and blogging is just one of those. And it will be better for certain kinds of texts than others, where others will find tools like Facebook or Twitter much more appropriate. More people watch videos in any given hour uh, on the web than read anything. We're going to see more of that going forward, which I actually think will increase the value of the poetry reading, going back Mm -hmm. to the geographic community uh, and the importance of reading series to document what they are doing with uh, decent recordings that they then put up on something like YouTube. One of the uh, ironic side effects of that is going to be that poets can't give the same reading in every city ad infinitum. They can't give the same reading, period, because every one of them is going to be unique. They may, in fact, well, every one of them is unique insofar as the context and the audience, but you'll see a much greater variety in the texts they bring forward. Final question. What do you think the most magnificent poem ever written is? I think it probably will differ for almost every reader. For you. Edgar's text on the heath in King Lear would very possibly be that moment for me, but not all of King Lear. If I were to pick an entire poem, it would be Zukovsky's A. If I were to pick an entire literature of an individual writer, it might be William Carlos Williams. And if you were to ask me next week, I might give you different answers. Very good. Thanks for talking to me uh, this week, and uh, best of luck in all future weeks. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.